We'll be reading from Acts chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged at them, against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judah, and, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these things, for these reasons, uh, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim the light to Jewish, to Jew, Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, 
but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. You may be seated. I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. And we're going to dive in and look at Acts 26 here this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word through which we can know you. And we praise you, Lord, for Jesus. And we thank you for the promised Holy Spirit who abides within us forever. Father, we ask today that you would open our understanding about how to defend the Christian faith. How to give an answer for this hope that lies within us. I pray, Father, that you would grant us grace to speak and live worthy of your name. To operate with a spirit of humility and to speak truth and reason unashamedly. And to be persuasive with our speech toward those, both great and small, who are in need of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would take the text today and equip us to be more effective servants and witnesses for Jesus We ask that you would take this text and you would plant it in us, that we might live it out openly before a world that so desperately needs to hear and see Jesus. Father, to that end we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. We seem to be a people today that do a lot of searching on the internet Anybody do any searching on the internet? Anybody? Okay, just about all of you probably at one point in time have gone to a search engine, have typed up something, you're looking for something, you're looking to find some information about some things. People today are searching for answers and not necessarily spiritual answers, not necessarily, although I believe there are many who are. But in general, a lot of people are searching, they're looking, they're in need to know. To know things like how to fix the clogged pipe in the kitchen sink. They might go on to try and figure out how to convert a stove from electric to gas. They might go on to try to figure out how to repair a chair that's been broken. They might want to go on to see how to make a certain, some of you young ladies maybe have done this, how to make a certain crochet crochet stitch for a particular gift that you're wanting to make for someone. We are, in general, a, a pretty inquisitive lot of folks, always wondering, asking how to do something that needs done. Well, as we pick up the text this morning where we left off last week, 
we arrive here in Acts 26. We're getting closer to Paul actually getting to Rome. Remember this summer is Acts 21 through 28. And by the time we're done at the end of 28, we're going to be able to see Paul. He's actually going to be in Rome. He's going to arrive. He is going to get there. Not there yet. He's got one more defense, one more hearing uh, before King Agrippa, before that happens. As I was looking at Acts 26, it caused me to wonder whether we've put much thought into how to answer someone regarding the faith we profess in the Lord Jesus Christ. We look online to find out how to do all kinds of things, don't we? My question this morning for you is, do we think much of how to answer other people about this faith that we hold to? Proverbs 15, 28 might be a good proverb for you to learn. Take with you, put it in your pocket, store it up in your memory bank. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. Contrast there. Do we know how to answer someone who asks us a reason for the hope that lies within us? This is the how-to question from the text that I'd like us to look at today. So, how does a follower of Jesus defend the Christian faith? How does a follower of Jesus Christ defend the faith? If we were to just take the big idea, we're going to take it in four parts here this morning of the text. And these points come from the text. I make these up. We'll see them in the text. But a defense of the Christian faith... This is really the big idea of of the passage. A defense of the the Christian faith is predicated upon Christian living. And Christian living, as we see in Acts 26, has four things. We're going to talk about those four things. Has a prequel. That's the first thing. A prequel. Christian living has has a prequel. It has a, a past And, you know, as we think about the past, I was reminded of of that phrase, uh, skeletons in the closet. We all have a past. Every single one of us sitting here this morning, we have a past. We have something that we can look backward in time on and we're able to evaluate. Some of us have more time to look back on than others. However, we all have this past. And this is an important part of the defense that Paul is submitting before Agrippa in Acts 26. Christian living has a prequel, a precursor. What was Paul's life like prior to his Acts 9 conversion? I think he shares some of that with us here in the first few verses leading up to verse 11 in chapter 26. Galatians chapter 1, 13 and 14 speaks of his former conduct, right? He was, as we see in the text, he was zealous to oppose those pursuing Christ. 
He shut up many of the Christians in prison. He punished them in every synagogue. And even the idea there, the rendering, has in mind that perhaps he was even involved in some of the flogging. He compelled them to blaspheme. Pressuring them to turn from their pursuit of the way. Remember that? He's, he's causing them, pressing them to forsake Christ and turn instead to receive what would be the traditions of Judaism. And so we have here in the text, Paul gives his past and he's presenting this before King Agrippa. And remember at the front, he's telling King Agrippa, please hear me and be patient. Because Paul is actually going to go backward and he's going to explain some things that have happened in the past in his life. But he doesn't stay in the past, praise God. He moves somewhere. He's going somewhere with his testimony. That's what this is. He is explaining and giving a defense for the Christian faith and at the same time giving a personal testimony. Church, it's hard to give a personal testimony apart from Speaking to Jesus Christ. And Paul is doing that. He's going to be doing that. We'll see this develop here in Acts 26. He even says, I cast my vote against them. That idea of casting his vote. How did he cast his vote? He, He would cast his vote sometimes with a pebble, with a stone. Right? The Jews, for those who were blaspheming, they were given authority to stone someone. And on occasion, he talks about this. this is, he's talking about his past. Some of the things that he used to do. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 9, at the beginning of Acts chapter 9 in verses 1 and 2, we see that it's right at that time. This is right after Stephen was martyred. In Acts chapter 9, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's what Paul was doing. He went to the high priest and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This was Paul's past. A persecutor of the church. Church, I'd like for you to think this morning, what was your life like? What was your life like Before you came to know Jesus Christ. What things did you participate in some time ago? What activities did you once enjoy? What did you used to define as fun? What was your life like prior to the new birth taking place in your life? How did you used to act? How did you used to speak? Got a picture of that? Because I think that as we look at Paul's past, I think that all of Scripture being profitable like it is, it's important to ask the question and not just be stuck on Paul's past, but we see Paul laying out before Agrippa and before all these dignitaries a very messy past. And perhaps some of you here today have what you would consider to be a messy past. 
And as you sit here today, you would just assume, forget all of that. But I want to encourage you, because all of us have a past. And what I know to be true from God's word is that God never wastes our past experiences. Even the painful ones. Even the difficult ones. But God will use those things in our lives to strengthen us, to use these things in our past to help comfort others who go through some of these same things. I think just as a quick snapshot, as a reminder of who we once were, you know, we can, we can look at, at a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, and we're reminded that we were once dead in trespasses and sins. Remember that? We were, that's who we used to be. We were dead. We once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We, we used to walk all the time in disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he goes on in verse 3, we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's who we used to be, children of wrath. I love that passage in Titus chapter 3, which also gives us another picture of who we once were. He says, In Titus 3, verse 3, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's who we used to be. And then that marvelous passage in Corinthians chapter 2 and 3, that verse in chapter 2, verse 14, really pinpoints who we used to be the natural man. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, Paul says, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So we were once dead. We were once sons of disobedience, children of wrath, serving various lusts and pleasures, hateful, foolish, natural man. Having testified... In part to his former conduct among the Jews. Verses 2 through 5. Verses 9 through 11 of Acts 26. He moves from past to present. In verses 6 through 8. You'll notice a little change in 6, 7 and 8. And he's speaking to a present reality. What's the present reality? His chains. His chains. But know that the present chains have everything to do with what Paul refers to as the hope of the promise. Which was given by God in the past. Hope of the promise. We see this in verses 6, 7, and 8. He says, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, to this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you? That's a plural you, by the way. Why should it be thought incredible by you? Not just Agrippa, but all of you. Why should it be thought incredible? That God raises the dead. Paul's going somewhere with this. You see, the hope of the promise, first of all, is given by God. And that hope of the promise given by God, Paul is wanting to make very clear 
That hope has come. The hope of the promise is God's son, Jesus. The hope of the promise for the Jews. He's, he's, he's on trial because there were Jews who didn't like the fact that he kept preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, holding forth the resurrection of Jesus as a central idea. The hope of the promise was the Messiah for the Jewish people. You know, Paul in the the book of Colossians, he speaks about this hope. And he says, to the saints, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. The mystery among the Gentiles, he says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he says, him we preach. Paul's saying right here in Colossians, Christ, this, this hope, he's the one we preach. And church today, he's still the one we must preach. We must. He's the hope. So Paul is submitting to his audience that this hope of the promise is what our 12 tribes, he says, hope to attain. See, this is not only Paul's hope, but the hope of his countrymen. The problem is his countrymen haven't figured it out. The problem is his countrymen have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's what the book of Romans says. They stumbled. They missed Jesus. The hope of the promise. And here he is. He's standing accused and judged by the Jews regarding the hope of the promise. Paul asks a question which I believe helps explain where he's going with this hope of the promise. He says, why should it be thought incredible by you all that God raises the dead? He's pointing, listen, he's pointing to Jesus, the promised Holy One, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the branch of righteousness of which Jeremiah speaks of. The, the, the Redeemer, the Lamb of God, all of these Old Testament metaphors and understandings and descriptions of Christ who was to come. Paul is not only stating for Agrippa why he's in chains, but he's at the same time defending the Christian, the Christian faith. In verses 6, 7, and 8, Paul speaks of the basis for his chains while at the same time drawing a line of separation between the traditions of Judaism and Christianity. The hope of the promise made by God to our fathers is the Christ, Paul says. He had already come and many of the Jews had missed him. And the hope for the Christian today extends well beyond the grave because Jesus was raised from the dead. And that too was missed by many of the Jewish people. So what is it to be a Christian I think that's a question that comes into play. What what is it to be a Christian? If we're thinking about how to defend this Christian faith, what is it to be a Christian? I believe central to being a Christian is the firm belief that Jesus not only died and was buried, but on that third day, according to the scriptures, he was raised from that borrowed tomb. The cross and the empty tomb stand as, as handholds for the Christian faith. Christ died, he was buried, and the empty tomb, he was raised on the third day. The follower of Jesus defends the Christian faith by holding steadfastly to Christ's bodily death 
and resurrection. We must not forfeit that. Shortly after he was raised, he ascended where he now waits a return, a second coming. And the Bible says that God, in Acts chapter 17, the Bible says that God has appointed this man, Jesus, to judge. And judgment is going to be carried out according to what standard? Righteousness. Judgment is going to be carried out by a righteous standard, meted out through a righteous judge whose name is Jesus. So the prequel to Paul's life was a bit messy, wasn't it? Zealous was Paul, but not according to knowledge. In fact, Romans 10 has a good picture of this. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. That was really where Paul was. His own righteousness, this righteousness which is from the law. And he, just, he differentiates that in Philippians. Remember, chapter 3 differentiates that between this righteousness which comes from God by faith through Jesus Christ. That's the prequel. That's the past. But we need to understand that Christian living is not only about this prequel, this past. But it usually has what I just refer to as a point in time. A point in time. For living out the Christian faith, there's typically a point in time moment when the Lord reveals himself to you and you are drawn to him. John 6, 44 says that God is the one who draws us unto himself. We come to know Jesus as a result of God initiating his work in us, drawing. The Spirit, by the way, let's not forget, one of the ministries and roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sin. Okay? Some terms that we typically use for this point in time moment are regeneration, new birth, new creation. Okay? Those are some of the other terms that we might be familiar with from the scriptures. And so church, looking at the book of Acts, when you look at the book of Acts, what is that point in time moment for Paul? Anybody know? If you were to put a book and chapter, what would it be? Acts 9, absolutely. Acts 9. Acts 9 is what we know as Paul's conversion. We typically, you know, with Acts 9, it's, it's usually Paul's conversion. That's when he was knocked off his horse, blinded. God got his attention in Acts chapter 9. And here in Acts chapter 26, verses 12 through 18, it describes that point in time moment. When the Lord spoke to him. The Lord Jesus spoke to him. He intervened in Paul's life along the road. And really, as I was thinking about verses 12 through 18, I was thinking about Jesus along the road. Jesus along the road. You know, we had, initially we had skeletons in the closet tied with our prequel, our past. And here in 12 through 18, I was thinking, Jesus along the road. Jesus along the road. Because I think that's significant for us in the text to grasp, to effectively make a defense of the Christian faith. It's imperative that one first become a Christian. I'm going to state the obvious. If you're not a Christian, you cannot effectively defend the Christian faith. I hope that's an obvious statement. 
but I'll, I, I really believe it needs to be spoken. We must first be ourselves a Christian. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Okay, many of us know that verse. But I wonder if we only think about one way of what it means. Even in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that God has seen fit to save people through the foolishness of the message preached. And yet Jesus along the road is meant to alert us to the means by which the Lord can get our attention. You may know, in fact, as you sit here today, you might know a few people. You might know some people in your own household. You might know some extended family members, co-workers, friends, who are still far from the Lord. And perhaps you've given up all hope on them of ever being saved. One of the things quickly pointed to is that they're not connected to a church. They're not attending a church anywhere regularly. Sadly, there are many Christians that are not even connected to an assembly today. The building, listen, the building mindset has captured us. And this is the, the Jesus along the road thought that, that, that I wanted to present from the text this morning. Church is seen oftentimes and thought of oftentimes as something done inside these walls. We go to church. How many of us have said, it's time to go to church? Anybody ever said that? How many times have you caught yourself after you said that going, oh, I don't know if that's actually all that correct. Going to church. I like to add on to, as, as often as I can remember to do so, we're going to the church building. We're going to the place where the church gathers. Church oftentimes gets defined as that place to hear God's word. And I want to submit something this morning for you to consider. To, to all who follow Jesus. Buildings do not define this Jesus in the word. Buildings don't. That's not an, a New Testament concept. We can go back in the Old Testament. We can make a case for that as well. The word, listen, the word is to be in you, follower of Jesus. Okay? Think about it. And I want to be clear. I'm not advocating here that we do away with Sunday morning preaching of the word. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm advocating. Here's what I am advocating. I'm advocating that those who profess to follow Jesus speak often about this Jesus along the road. See, Paul is an example of one man who heard the literal word of God along the word. Not in a church building, not in a synagogue, not in a temple, but while en route to Damascus to continue his murderous threats to those operating according to the way. If God can get his word to Paul along the road, do you think that he can get his word to your friends and neighbors family members, co-workers who also need to hear his word that they too might be saved. Is the word of God in you? Is it in you? See, here's the connect with Christian living. We're talking about defending the Christian faith and defending the Christian faith is predicated upon Christian living. 
So here's the connect. It involves a prequel, a past. It involves this point in time. And for those of you here in Christ, I hope that you don't wait and wait and wait for the pastor to preach the word from the pulpit. But instead, I hope that you do as Ephesians 4 calls you to be doing the works of ministry. We are to help equip you in that regard. But it is you, friends, you who proclaim the name of Jesus. You are the ones to be able to speak the name. Spurgeon wrote of, uh, he mentioned this, this phrase of letting the lion out. I loved it. You see, when people are questioning the Bible, they're questioning Christ, they're questioning Christianity. He says, we need to let the Bible speak. Let the lion out. And we think about a lion. We think of some characteristics. A lion is powerful. A, a lion is strong. A lion is, uh, has authority. That's the word. And we need to let that lion out. If you follow Jesus, you're called to defend the Christian faith by implementing your members as righteousness to God as being alive from the dead. Remember, we used to be dead. We're alive now in Christ. Being a Christian means that we use these members. That's Romans chapter 6, by the way. You can look it up. We use these instruments now at, for righteousness sake. Not like we once did over here as slaves to sin. Think about your point in time moment, if you can recall it. Not all of you here have such a drastic point in time moment as Paul does. But all of you should have something to show for what it is to be a Christian. Any evidence in your life. Any fruit being born for the one that you profess to serve. Anything about your life that testifies that I am alive for the Lord Jesus. Anything right here going on. Anything right here going on that manifests itself in anything coming out. That says I'm alive for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul found out that he was persecuting Jesus himself when he persecuted the followers of the way. But look at what the Lord says in 16 through 18. He says, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness. To, note that, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, Paul had a clear moment in time conversion, did he not? A clear moment in time conversion as evidenced in Acts 9, which is also described in Acts 22, which is also described right here in Acts 26. The Lord set him apart as his chosen vessel of election, we see in Acts 9, 15 and 16. But is Paul the only one called to be the Lord's vessel? I hope you know the answer to that question. Hasn't he called each one of his followers to be a minister, a servant, and to be a witness? Acts 1.8. Let's go back to the main big idea of this book, right? 
Wait from the power on the high. When that power comes, the Holy Spirit power that is, when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus says you are to be what? Witnesses to Jesus. Witnesses to Jesus with the power given to you from on high. If we're going to defend the Christian faith effectively, we must be aware, friends, of who we are in Christ. The Lord will continue to deliver his people as they accomplish his purposes. He will continue to open the eyes of the blind. And he will continue to turn the lost from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to God. And he will do these things, friends, for the same reasons Paul's testifying before Agrippa. He will do them so that they might experience what it is to be forgiven. Have you thought lately of how wonderful it is to have been forgiven? By the Lord Jesus. These people who are lost in darkness. Serving the kingdom of Satan. The Lord has the power. The ability to turn. To open eyes. Blind eyes that they can see. So that they too. Can experience exactly what you have experienced. In the forgiveness of God. Through his son Jesus Christ. And, that's not even all, and so that they too might know what it is to be the recipient of an inheritance among the saints. They too, think about it, they get to be with Jesus. They get to be in heaven as apart from eternally in hell. Because the Bible really presents too, doesn't it? With Jesus in heaven... Or with Satan, his demons, in the pit of hell. Christian living has a prequel, has a point in time for many. But I believe here in the text we also see, thirdly, a prescribed path. Verses 19 through 23. 19 through 23, a prescribed path. And, and, and I love that first verse in, in 19. He says, therefore, he's just, he's just gotten done telling Agrippa and everyone about what the Lord said to him. And he says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. <laughs> Here, the phrase that, that, that came to my, my attention as I was reading this was life on the line. Life on the line. Paul is standing before Agrippa, delivering his defense of the Christian faith, the core issue at hand being the resurrection of Jesus. And he wants Agrippa to know the why behind his behavior. It has everything to do with what the Lord spoke to me, King Agrippa. The Lord spoke to me. The Lord called me to this. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And we could translate that to make it positive. If we translate that on the positive end, it would, it would simply say, I have been obedient to what the Lord told me. What you're seeing, Agrippa, what you're hearing about is nothing more than me endeavoring to obey what the Lord has called me to do. New creation living, being a Christian, new creation living equates to obedience. We are now operating under new management. We have a new master. He's the one on the throne now, and that now becomes the deciding factor driving our decision making. 
A new creation is new like never before. That's the idea when we talk about a new creation. The newness comes by way of the Holy Spirit who now abides in us forever. John chapter 14 verse 6 says. He abides in the one who has been redeemed. The spirit in you is the mighty power enabling you to live as a new creation in Christ. And Paul's life is on the line now. You see, as a new creation, his life is immediately subject to death. If you go back to his conversion in Acts 9, what happens immediately after his conversion? He's, his life is on the line. I mean, he almost loses his life in Damascus. They have to lower him in a little basket out of the wall. Remember it secretly? And then later he goes into Jerusalem and they want to kill him in Jerusalem. And then he goes on these travel, these journeys around the Mediterranean. And on a few different occasions, people want to take his life. Why? Why do they want to take him out? Obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ is offensive to many. But it nevertheless stands as the prescribed path for the follower of Jesus. A Christian who exercises obedience is a Christian who is following Jesus at his word. A disobedient Christian, a disobedient Christian maligns the Christian faith, profanes the name of Jesus. As followers, listen, as followers, it's imperative that we are following Jesus. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as Christ walked. Following comes as we first deny ourselves and take up our cross daily, the Bible says. Then come, follow me, he says. Following Jesus implies a surrendering of your will to God's will. A willingness to let God lead you through the mighty power of his helper, Holy Spirit, abiding within. Paul's life of obedience is defined by three things in the text. And there's no magic formula to Christian living. But I would like to give you from the text... Three things that I believe are still applicable for the follower of Jesus today. Three things that, if exercised, will produce great fruit for the kingdom of God and lift up the name of Jesus. If exercised. Faith exercised. Some of us in here, and we think about exercise, and we think about, you know, working out physically, getting a physical workout. And maybe some of us do that regularly. We do that well. But the question that I'd like to ask is, are we regularly exercising our faith? Do we have spiritually flabby muscles? I think these three things in the text, I didn't make them up, they're right here. Okay? These are the three things, I want to point them out to you. These three things, and it's in verse 20. I was not disobedient, he says, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles... That they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Now, here are the three things to exercise. How, think about, remember our question, how do we defend the Christian faith? Paul says, this is what I've been doing, Agrippa. 
I've been calling people to repent. Repent of what? What do we repent of, church? Huh? Sin. Repent of sin. Paul said, I've been calling people to repent of sin. Another word that we could see in the Bible, another Bible word that's used, we could put in here, is flee. So he's on one hand calling people to repent. Secondly, turn to God. Turn to God. Another Bible word we could put in here is pursue. Believe, receive Christ. John 1, 12. Believe his life, his death, trusting in him as the object of your faith. Turn to God. Paul is calling people to repent of their sins and then to turn to God in faith. And thirdly, to do works befitting a life of repentance. Here it is. Exercise obedience to the Lord. That's what Paul's calling people toward. And he did that in Jerusalem. He did that in Damascus. He did that in the region of Judea. He did that among the Mediterranean. Wherever he went, he was calling people to these three things. Paul's life is on the line. And yet he's speaking only the very things that the prophets and Moses spoke. And we see that in verse 23. That the Christ would suffer. He would be the first to rise from the dead. And would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And we see in the book of Isaiah in chapter 53 that wonderful passage of the suffering servant. And we see also in Isaiah chapter 42, 1 through 9, the the reference to the servant of the Lord. and, And how he was going to call people out of darkness into the light. Making reference to the one yet to come, the Christ. The prophets spoke of it. You know, it's, it's hard when you read Acts 26. It's hard to imagine someone being in prison simply for walking in obedience to the truth of Jesus Christ, isn't it? That's what's going on. And yet even as we ask the question, how does the follower of Jesus defend the Christian faith? We must be prepared to receive the answer. For the answer to the question may lead you to a prison. It may cause friendships that once were to no longer be. It might cause division. It might result in being shunned and pushed to the side. The world will hate you, friends. John 15 says that. That if you are following Jesus in this world we live in, the world will hate you because you follow Jesus. They won't like your message because they don't like Christ's message. And just like Paul before Agrippa, we speak to those around us We must tell them why we're doing what we're doing. As we defend this Christian faith, as we present our testimonies, we must speak of Jesus. This is why we're doing what we're doing. And calling others along this road to repent of their sins, to then turn to God and then do works befitting a repentant life. That's Paul's pattern. It's a biblical pattern, church. It's a biblical pattern, and yet it's a pattern that landed him in prison. And it got me thinking, do do you desire to be obedient to Jesus 
more than you do to be free from persecution. Does walking with the Lord, delighting in Him, desiring to please Him, does that occupy your thoughts or do you operate from the perspective that I'll obey Him as long as or until things start to go south? If that's you, then you're, you're, you're nothing more than the, the person Jesus is describing in Mark's Gospel chapter 4, the seed that's sown on the stony path. The depth is... About like this. Because when persecution arises because of the word, what's it say? It's too tough. It's too hard. We want to straddle the line. Undue creation in Christ equates to obedience. To defend the Christian faith, we must live the Christian faith. And living the Christian faith requires walking the prescribed path of obedience to his word. Now in verse 24, we're just about done. Hang in there. In 24, notice a transition occurs. Notice once again, Paul is cut off from speaking. Have you noticed that when Paul is speaking, he oftentimes doesn't get to finish. Anybody here talk and you just don't get to finish sometimes? Anybody familiar with that? Yeah. Well, Paul is a lot of times sharing... He's been given permission to speak, but he doesn't get to finish. Verse 24 is another example. Festus speaks up in verse 24. And I want you to see how Paul answers both to Festus and to Agrippa. I want you to look at how Paul engages Agrippa in conversation. Now, remember, we've talked about Christian living, how it involves a prequel, a past. It involves a point in time, what we would call a conversion. It involves a a prescribed path, which we've... Talked about being obedience. But I believe here in these remaining verses, we see that Christian living also involves a persuasion. A persuasion. And, and I just labeled this part madness upon observation. Madness. You know, a life that speaks of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life is surely going to fly right in the face of a world that likes to have things their own way. And like Paul, we will be thought mad. We will be thought completely out of our minds. If we hold to, live out what the Bible prescribes as the Christian life. Walking in newness of life. We're going to be thought crazy. You're going to be thought, you have just lost it. What are you thinking? And some of you maybe have heard similar words from people very close to you. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.13, he says, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Or if we're of a sound mind, it's for you. See, Festus interrupts Paul's defense by claiming that his great learning has driven him mad. Remember a proverb we started with? 1528, the heart of the righteous studies how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. Here we have the contrast right here in Acts 26. Paul responds gracefully to Festus. I am not mad, most noble Festus. Keeps his composure. Says, I am not mad. But what's he say? I speak the words of truth and reason. 
Paul clarifies his defense to Festus. He says, I'm not mad as you think. In fact, I'm speaking words that are truthful and reasonable. Festus, I am giving to you a very reasonable defense of this faith to which I hold. And the final verses paint the picture of truth's collision with ungodliness. Truth's collision with ungodliness. And so how do you answer someone who is lost? Think about this for just a moment. Are you immediately put off by their comments? Do you immediately try to manufacture this one needful thing to win the argument? Or do you see them in need of the same hope that you have? Do you have compassion upon them and long to see them come to know the truth of Jesus as well? Your heart response will make all of the difference. And Paul goes on to speak of the king. He's talking with Festus and then he brings King Agrippa into this. I love how Paul does this. Talk about persuasion. He he brings him in to point out that the king knows of such events that I'm speaking to about Jesus. This didn't happen in obscurity. This is well known. This, in fact, we can go back in the chronicles of history and we can see and point to this man Jesus and see that he lived and see that he died on the cross and see that he was raised from the dead. All of his apostles were talking about it. No one has been able to refute it. Instead of getting upset at Festus for interrupting his defense, he's focused on the souls of those gathered. King Agrippa in particular. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. In some translations, it's, do you think that in such a short time you can make me a Christian? Listen to Paul's answer. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become almost and altogether such as I am. And you almost picture him holding up the chains. Except for these chains. End of discussion. Notice there's nothing else spoken by Agrippa or Festus or any of the other dignitaries at that point. Meeting adjourned. Agrippa stands, followed by the governor, followed by Bernice, other dignitaries. They gather together, they debrief. This man is doing nothing deserving death or chains. And Agrippa himself, at the end of the chapter... He speaks with Festus and he says, this man might have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. And remember that Festus was relying upon Agrippa. He's relying upon Agrippa for what he had to write in this report to send to the emperor. Seems Festus doesn't have a whole lot more information to go on here. Agrippa's told him, he's innocent. He's not worthy of death or chains. Truth and reason are put forth by Paul. 
As we consider how to defend the Christian faith, it's important to wield truth and reason. And I was reminded in John's gospel, Jesus is praying to the Father right before he goes to the cross. John chapter 17. And in verse 17, he prays to the Father. He says, sanctify them. Them would be the followers of Jesus. Sanctify them, Father, by your truth. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, he defines what truth is. Your word is truth. Sanctify the followers of Jesus by your truth. Your word is truth. So he's praying to the Father that his followers would be sanctified, would be set apart as holy. That's what the word means, sanctified. Set apart as holy. That they would be sanctified by God's truth. He then defines himself what that truth is. Your word is truth. So the Christian then defends the Christian faith by persuasion, which amounts to speaking words of truth and reason in accordance to the very word of God. Our words and our actions are to be aligned with the truth, which is the word. To defend the Christian faith apart from the truth of the word is a futile exercise. When others hear of a truth contained in the scriptures... They cringe as though their rights are being infringed upon. But friends, if you are in Christ, you are following him now. You're living in his prescribed path of obedience. In that hymn that we oftentimes sing, Trust and Obey, it is true that as we trust and obey, there truly is no other way if you are a Christian follower. That's the path we must travel however difficult, however treacherous it may be. Jesus prayed for his followers to be set apart as holy by the truth, which is his word. And I want to ask you this morning, is your life patterned by this word of truth, friends? The truth has always collided with ungodliness. It did in Jesus' day. It did in Paul's day. And it still does today in the 21st century. If we are going to make a defense for the Christian faith, it must be a defense built upon the truth of God's word. And it must include a living out of the faith that we profess. So, as you consider others searching the internet for how-tos, it's where we began. I want to encourage you from this text... To share what I believe to be the greatest how-to message. And to share it through your life witness. Remember that defending the Christian faith is predicated upon living the Christian faith. And Christian living involves a prequel, a past. And sometimes it's a messy past. But it involves the past. It involves a point in time which we know as conversion. It involves a prescribed path then, a path of obedience. We're a new creation now and we walk in the way of our new master. And Christian living involves a persuasion which is built on God's word of truth and reason. And we stand firmly upon those promises of God, trusting in him persuading others, and, and even in the midst of that persuasion, there's, there's a, a, a bit of what we might know as evangelism in there, is there not? 
the desire for others to come to know this Jesus that we serve. Repent, turn to God, do works befitting repentance. My prayer is that you claim that as your own first. If there are some here today who have not done that, I pray from the scripture we just read in Acts 26. Paul's pattern of what he did wherever he went. He called people to repent. He called them to turn to God. And he called them to do works befitting repentant life. And that's the same thing I'm calling you this morning. If you do not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that first needs to be in place. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge your sins. Confess them to the Lord. Turn. Flee from those sins. Turn to God. Believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the object of your faith. Exercise then this faith in how you live. And my prayer is that then you would call others to that same way of living. And as you do so, know that the Lord will give you a mouth and a wisdom as you fulfill his purposes as his servant and his witness in this world. Amen? Let's do that. Let's commit to doing that together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good word. And we thank you for teaching us from your word how to give an answer. How to make a defense. And Father, we know here this morning, we all... All of us have skeletons in the closet. We all have things in our past that are messy, things that are ugly, things that we don't like to maybe talk about. But Lord, it's part of our past. It's part of a story, Lord, that you have been weaving in our lives. And Father, we praise you. Many of us here, I believe, have experienced that point in time conversion, that time where we have turned from our sin, repented from our sin. We've turned to God in faith, trusting in Jesus and now stand here as a new creation in Christ. And Father, I pray that we would remember that Jesus can be found along the road, not just in a building. Father, I pray that we would be your instruments to see that your word is heard outside these walls. Father, help us then to remember that you have prescribed a path for those of us in Christ, those of us who follow Jesus, the prescribed path of obedience to walk in. May we walk in that path regardless of the cost it may be. And Father, as we do all of these things, I pray, Lord, that we would also remember each day of our lives that this Christian living involves a persuasion, a standing upon truth and reason, of being able to enter into the dialogue with those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, to not feel like we have to win an argument, but instead, Lord, be an ambassador of yours, one who knows his identity in Christ Jesus and is able to communicate that identity with someone else and simply say, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. The Lord and his word has called me to be about this. Father, I pray that you would grant us great boldness. Give us grace to be able to do that with meekness and gentleness. Father, you might turn the hearts of men and women to you.
bringing them from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Oh, Father, that they too might experience what it is to be forgiven, that they too might experience what it is to receive that inheritance of the saints for which we all look forward to in Christ. Embolden us, Lord, for this mission in the days that we have remaining here. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.